A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So tauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And today we'll talk a little bit about the famous Chalukah system that existed as a way of financing the Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. In an earlier period it was Tveria, Tzfas, Chevron, later came to be more associated with Yerushalayim. How it worked, how it developed, and different uh, challenges that it encountered over its um, existence. But it was a system that... Uh, Jewish communities back in Europe and really all over the world, they they funded the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael, uh, where they had Jews had moved to and developed communities, and they were supported by the aforementioned communities back home. Now, the Chalukah system existed for a very very long time. It originally existed amongst the Sephardic Jewish communities that um, developed already in really old times and uh, from the Ramban's Aliyah in 1267 and later um, further Sephardic communities in Hebron and Yerushalayim where the communities would send what were called Shadarim, Shlucha Rachmana, Shlucha Rabbanon really, I'm sorry, Shlucha Rabbanon, uh, messengers of the rabbis, and these messengers were usually great Talmud Chacham, great scholars from the um, Eretz Yisrael communities um, to the Mediterranean Basin, to North Africa, even to Europe. Um, uh, some of them became quite famous. Some of them even made it to the New World. Uh, some of the earliest Sephardic rabbis in the New World in North and South America were actually uh, messengers who were extended fundraising missions for the Jewish community back home. The Chalukah system takes a new jump with the Ashkenazic Aliyah uh, starting in the 18th and really develops in the 19th centuries. And it was the way that what's known as the old Yishuv of Yerushalayim um, survives. It survives on the Chalukah, on this financing of the Jewish communities across Europe. The first aliyah, the first major aliyah of the Ashkenazim is the Talmidei Baal Shem Tev, Rabbi Nachman de Levitebsk, 
And a Ravram Kalisker moved with about 300 Hasidim, which is a community that slowly grows over the years. They're based in Svas and Feria, followed about 30 years later by the Ali of the Talmidi Hagoin, 1808, 1809, 1810. They eventually make it down to Yerushalayim. They also start in Svas and Feria, and they make it down to Yerushalayim. Rav Menachem of Shklov renews the Ashkenazi Jewish community of Yerushalayim. And they also are sustained by the Chalukah, by the, this uh, allocation of funds uh, based on their communities of origin back in Europe. So one of the clarifications needed in this uh, very important topic, the echoes of which uh, really resonate within um, um, Israeli Haredi society till this very day, um, which hopefully I'll get to and touch on at the end, um, but really, the question—the first question that we should tackle is what what classifies the old yeshiv? Um, if we're making a distinction between the old and new yeshiv, the old uh, yeshiv is what we're talking about as being the recipients of the Chalukah. So what is the old yeshiv? So this is something that has been a question that troubled researchers, historians, and others who are involved in the topic over the years, and all kinds of creative distinctions were made between the old, so-called old Yishuv and the so-called new Yishuv, one of which, for example, was the time period in which they arrived. Did they arrive before a certain year in the late 1800s? And that's the old Yishuv. And if they came after a certain year in the, in the or years around a certain specific time period in the late 1800s, then they're already considered part of the new Yishuv. The problem with that, or the limitation of that, is that there were members of the old Yishuv, or people who associated themselves with the community of the old Yishuv, who came at a later period of time, and there were people who associated with uh, people who associated with the new Yishuv that came at an earlier period of time. So that's not a good distinction. Another distinction that people came up with, and other researchers came up with, was where they moved to. If they moved to the what was known as the four holy cities, Yerushalayim, Hebron, Tzvas and Tveria, then they're part of the old Yishuv. If they move to the new Moshavot, to the new settlements, then they're the new Yishuv. They're building the settlements. The problem, the limitation, rather, of that theory was the same exact one as the previous theory. There were those who, who associated themselves with the old Yishuv who moved to the new Moshevot. Uh, I mean, the, the old Yishev founded new Moshevot. The Petach Tikva was founded by members of the old Yishev. Petach Tikva is known in Israeli historiography as Aim HaMoshevot, the mother of the new settlements. It's founded by religious members of the old Yishev. So that can't be the parameter. And, and obviously the opposite is for sure the case. There are people who associated with the new Yishev who settled down in Yerushalayim. And that's uh, very clear. So that's a limitation of that theory. A third possibility that was come up with was what type of person? This this is a severely limited uh, theory. If they were very, very religious, then they must be part of the old Yishuv. And they were very, very secular, then maybe they're, they're probably part of the new Yishuv. And of course, that definitely has limitations because there is many very, very religious people who are uh, by all means part of the new Yishuv. Along came a very prestigious researcher, named Yisrael Bartal, the professor emeritus today, and he made the nicest and cleanest and 
you know, probably the most accepted distinction between the new Yishuv and the old Yishuv, and it's based on the financing. Old Yishuv means that they came to be sustained and supported by the Chalukah system. And it doesn't matter who they were, what they looked like, where they came from, and when they came or where they settled. If they came to be supported by the Chalukah, they're part of the old Yishuv. And if they came to to be supported by their own toil and work, whatever job that they had, either if it was working the land or becoming a tailor or uh, or any other job, finance for uh, for that matter, it could be they're considered part of the new Yishuv. And that seems to be a very uh, logical and and, uh, and good distinction between the new and old. And, and it's based on this uh, Chalukah system. So how does the Chalukah work? If we go back to the Aliyah of the Talmud Bal Shem Tov, the Aliyah of the Hasidim. So before they even leave, they set up a financial framework that they should be supported by the mother communities based on their communities of origin. And certain Rebbes and Sadiqim back home were in charge of collecting the funds. And famously, the Alta Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, the Balatanya, Rebbeshner Zalman of Liadi, what, has like four or five titles there. He's also in charge of uh, fundraising for the community of Hasidim in Tzvass and Tveria. And there's obviously an exchange of letters and also messengers who go back and forth to take the money and, and encourage the fundraising operations. And uh, later on, Reb Chaim Velazhener is the one in charge of doing the same for the original Aliyah of the Talmidei Hagra, the students of the Vilna Gain who moved also. And as time goes on and it increases, the communities of Yerushalayim specifically and in general, uh, the ones members of the other communities as well, are divided into what was known as the Kailalim. They based on their community of origin, and when they tried to pool the funds, then there was a Vad Kol HaKailalim, which did not include all the Kailalim, but it was supposed to. And here we come to one of the first uh, problematic, uh, um, to a certain extent, crises of the system was how is the money raised, how is it sent, and how is it divided, how is it allocated once it arrives there? And that that becomes a point of contention. The first, Firstly, and how it's raised, who's in charge, and how do they get the money together, and who do they raise it from? And uh, there are all kinds of disputes and misunderstandings sometimes, and there's a very famous and long and quite bitter dispute that the Alter Rebbe uh, was involved in 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 uh, in the fundraising for the Jewish the Hasidic community in Tveria, and uh, which was only resolved when the when Rebbe Kalisker and his successors appointed others to be in charge. And the Rebbe Shneri Zalman, Alter Rebbe, um, fundraised for for either continued to fundraise or fundraise for uh, another part of the Hasidic community, and it divided at that point and. Almost every tzaddik and rebbe and great rabbi in the Lithuanian world was involved at some point or another in raising the money for the chalukah, and uh, and, uh, and 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 as it became more specified about a, a place of origin, if it was the uh, Kailal Ungarin, then it was collected from people in the area of Hungary. If it was Kailal Minsk, then it was from the jurisdiction of the Minsk district in the Russian Empire. If it was, you know, Kailal Vilna, and it could be Kailal Volin, which was an area of the Ukraine, and so on and so forth. It became uh, very strictly based on, and it was geographical, it was territorial. By the way, 
It also enhanced the prestige of any Rebbe who was involved in the collection because it gave him a certain uh, say in that territory. Meaning if he's in charge of the collection in that territory, then then his, the, ex, the extent of his reach and his influence and the way he can reach Hasidim. You know, the Rebbe sends one of his trusted Hasidim to, to ostensibly to collect for the Jewish community in Eretz Yisrael. But once his Hasid is there, then he's able to talk to the Jewish community there about Hasidus, about the Rebbe, and about and it spreads the uh, the message of Hasidus and specifically of that court of of this Rebbe to that area. So the the collection for the purposes of the Chalukah is also used for the uh, ne- local needs of the of the, the of the people involved as well. So we got the money collected, and now it has to be sent over. So sending it also is, is, is not so easy, especially with the political situation. Eretz Yisrael was situated in the Ottoman Empire at the time, and, um, and uh, the Russian Empire, which is where a large bulk of it, not all of it, a lot of the communities were in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which did get along a little better with the Ottoman Empire, but a lot of the communities where the money was collected was in the Russian Empire, and the Russian Empire did not always did not really get along at all with the Ottomans, and transferring the money also was a challenge. But they got the money over to Eretisro. So now, how does the money given out? So now there's a gabai, or even a board of each kail, or at a certain time when Rishmul Salant attempted to unify the kailim under one umbrella organization called the Vad Kol HaKailim. So then there was, then we have to divide up the money. We have to decide based on seniority, based on importance, based on their position in the community, based on um, uh, how many children they have. Uh, there's a, a, a hundred different criteria that go into how much money is given out to each person. The money comes late, people are starving. People literally, you know, sometimes even died of starvation. It was dire par- poverty in Yerushalayim. And you're talking about that this is the only way that they were able to survive. They paid rent, they bought food, they did everything with this money. There was no other source of income. If there wasn't enough money collected, then they simply did not have money. If their if the money came late, right, before Yantif, it was supposed to come before Yantif, but the ship was delayed and the money only came after Yantif. So how did anyone make Yantif? So these are the challenges of receiving the money in Eretz and dividing it. And this also became a point of contention up to the point of crisis, this caused sometimes major disputes within the these kailim in Yerushalayim, these different subunits of how to divide the money, and and eventually they looked for new sources of income. At some point, even Kailal America was formed. Rabbi Shuleib Diskin was involved in that and receiving funding from America, which Jews in America, which was a new source of income. It wasn't the community of origin of almost anyone in Yerushalayim, but since they received funds from it, so then then. Others or whoever was involved in that can receive those funds, and that uh, um, became a source of challenge, of conflict to a certain extent, and and uh, and uh, and and of course at times um, tragedy if if it, you know genuinely money came late or or didn't arrive altogether. Especially if we jump ahead in time to World War One, right? There's four years where basically no money is arriving because Europe's at war. The Jewish communities in Europe themselves are impoverished, and it's almost impossible to send over any money. So how does anyone survive? So that becomes a, a existential question, essentially, that there's no way to fund the communities at that point. And, and uh, many people starve. Many, there's disease that spreads, 
and it becomes a problem. So there's really two overall uh, challenges that face the very existence, uh, the continuation of the Chalukah system over time. Two, the two great problems are, where, where one technical issue is demographic growth, um, and demographic growth is based on two factors. Number one, natural growth. People married, they had families, they had children, and they, these children settled down in Yerushalayim, and, and they continued living off the Chalukah system. They continued uh, living off the support that they got, and they did not uh, look to support themselves or get a job because they are Jews living in Yerushalayim, and, uh, and therefore they live off the Chalukah system. That was something they were born into, and that's what came to be the standard of life. And since there's natural growth, that means there's more mouths to feed, there's more families, there's more people, and they have to be allocated part of the funds. Now, the funds need to be always increased because of that. And not always is it possible to raise that much more money. That's factor number one. Factor number two is more important. Because what was the premise of the whole Chalukah system? Why did it even start? Why was it that people who moved to Eretz Yisrael voluntarily, the Jewish communities back in Europe, decided that it's incumbent upon them to support their brethren in Eretz Yisrael, and they can sit, what we say, al of they sit in the Kedusha, and the holiness of Yerushalayim, learning Torah, davening, and they get supported. Why, why did that exist? What was the premise of that existence? There was, no one was forced into it. Everyone who came into it originally was voluntarily. They wanted to support them. The idea behind it was is that these people are giving up the good life, so to speak, relatively, everything is relative in this context, of living back in a normal community in Europe and you know, being a tailor or a shoemaker or even a small merchant or a peddler in a shtetl, in a town, in a city in Europe and making a respectable living under the circumstances and these people are giving them that all up. They're moving to a place where there's no economy, a backward colony in the Ottoman Empire where there's no way to, to make any living. But they're going to live in Yerushalayim, Yerakadosh. They're going to be in a, in a holy place doing holy work. What are they going to be doing? They're going to be learning Tyro all day and night. They're going to be, some of them even learning Kabbalah. Some of them are... are are studying and and just living a life of holiness of Yerush Shemayim of and 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 the Jewish communities back home are willing to support that more than that they even and this was a strong belief in the Jews of Eastern Europe of all over Europe essentially was that they are going to be davening for them they they're by the Mekoyimis Akedoshin they're by the holy sites the holy places like the Kaisel like the Mara Samachpela in Hebron like the Kivrit Sadikim up north, and they're going to daven for the communities back home. This is something that's tangible, that's real, and this is something that they're getting in return. And therefore, the the idea is is that we're willing to support that. We want to support that. And here we come to factor number two, where the system becomes problematic, because not only is there demographic growth, but at some point, when it's the second, third, fourth generation, when there's a growth in the population, there's also immigration. There's a constant stream, small. Small but steady, over the 19th century, there are people who moved to Eretz Yisrael. And uh, not only is there a population growth due to natural growth and immigration, but also not everyone is exactly living that ideal life anymore. Not everyone is learning Torah Yom Not everyone is carrying the responsibility of 
being living that holy life of being privileged to live in Eretz Yisrael because they're kind of born into it and it becomes a system and they're born into a world where they get supported. And uh, once it becomes clear that that's the case by cer- about certain individuals within the community, so the communities back home are less inclined to support it. We're supporting a Torah-pure community in Eretz Yisrael. And we're happy to support that. But if not everyone's like that, then why should we... Why should we go ahead and just support anyone who lives there just because they live there? If they're not doing what they're expected to do, then that's a corruption in the system. So it becomes harder and harder to sustain the, the uh, growth and the economic needs of the community. Not only that, it comes to such an extreme position. This is almost shocking to hear, but there were certain rabbis who were anti-immigration to Eretz Yisrael, to the old Yishuv, because you're going to be a burden on the Chaluga system. You can only go if you're a Talmud Chacham. You can only go if you're an elderly Jew who they know and can trust that he's going to be living that holy life. And then he can therefore join this old Yishuv where they're going to be included in the Chaluka system. But if anyone has a license to go just pick themselves up and go to Eretz Yisrael and be expected to be supported, who says, how can we, how can we sustain that system? So it becomes harder and harder to support. The big crisis comes during World War I and the immediate aftermath where the Jewish communities back in Eastern Europe are decimated economically, sometimes even more than economically, sometimes they're completely decimated, and it becomes very difficult to continue this support. But that continues. Many members of the old Yishuv leave the old Yishuv. They start to take initiatives to make their, to better their situation. Already in the 19th century, people like Moses Montefiore and later the Alliance, the, uh, the organization called Kol Yisrael Haverim, based in France, they tried to help out the old Yishuv by creating uh, uh, workshops to train them in different trades. And Moses Montefiore was involved in different initiatives like that. And, uh, and to try to help the old Yishuv integrate into uh, becoming a economically self-sufficient community. And this also causes friction within the community because we're not supposed to be economically self-sufficient. We're supposed to be a holy community. Like I said, al of al And uh, the idea that the old Yishuv should be going to workshops when we're sending our shadars, we're sending our shalucha d'rabonim back to Europe and telling them that everyone in Yerushalayim is living b'kedusho v'tayra and we need to be supported so it becomes, it becomes a challenging narrative because not everyone fits that mold. There are those, and many of those, who still do. And uh, not everyone. So who's it representing? Is it the entire community? Is it supposed to be the entire community? Is it only some inside the community? Others are moving out. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, moving out already meant leaving. Many of them left religion entirely. The Zionist movement was sweeping Winds of change sweeping across the old Yishuv and took many of the best and brightest of the youth of the old Yishuv out to the new kibbutzim. And there they not just they don't just leave the new Yishuv, the old Yishuv to the new one, but sometimes and unfortunately they leave religion altogether. And this situation kind of continues until the war, until World War II. And of course the Holocaust wipes out the Jews of Europe, and therefore the Chalukah system uh, essentially meets its end because the communities in Europe are no longer. And uh, many of it kind of accepted it because it had already been an ongoing process where the reality on the ground was changing and moving away from the regular Chalukah system. Others said the Chalukah system can continue. 
just the source of income now, will not be from Europe. It will be from the communities in the United States. And and then it's not really the Chalukah system anymore. It's not the Kailalim. It's 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 the idea that we live in Yerushalayim, and therefore we deserve and need to be supported by Jewish communities abroad. And uh, not everyone accepts that at this point. So this is something that in the 1950s and 60s um, forms an identity of certain segments within the religious community. Do we continue the idea, or to a certain extent, the ideal of the old way, where living in Yerushalayim means I'm living a holy life, living a Torah life, studying and toiling, and therefore Jewish communities abroad are going to voluntarily, everything's volunteer, no one forces, but be voluntarily supporting them? Or do we say that the system has been fundamentally changed in modern times and uh, that, that, that way is no longer going to work? So that's just a little bit of a taste, a little bit of an idea of how the background of the Chalukah system worked, and it kind of does bring it down to modern times because in a modern variation of it, obviously it's very, very different from what it was in the 19th century, but in a modern variation of it, it does somewhat uh, exist till this very day. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course tours and trips across Europe and Jewish history where the sources of the Chalukah came from, where it's a topic that comes up on tours, and of course in Eretz Yisrael when we talk about the recipients of the Chalukah in Sfas, Tveria, and of course Yerushalayim. So follow, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.